Well, the whole of the message of God, the whole of receiving from God, everything hinges on this thing called faith. And God requires faith of us. He's not just blessed or pleased when you operate in faith. He requires faith. Now, if God requires faith of us and doesn't give us the means whereby we can obtain it and the knowledge whereby we can use it, then we have a right to challenge his justice. But thank God that's not the case. He told us how to get faith. Romans 10, 17 says, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word. He tells us how to use our faith. Jesus in Mark chapter 11, verse 23 said, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. So God tells us how to get faith, and that's by hearing the word. He tells us how to use faith, and that is by the words that we speak. But what is this thing that God requires of us, this faith that pleases him, and that's the only thing the Bible says does please God from us? Walking in love is an important thing, and he expects that of us, but it doesn't say love. Walking in love pleases God. There's only one thing that the Bible identifies as what pleases God, and I know I'm saying this in the, in the strictest sense. God's pleased with us. A lot of things, and he's pleased with us because we've been made new by the blood of Jesus. But the Bible is very specific, and it says it's faith that pleases him. It's faith that pleases him. Now, what is this thing called faith, and why is it so important to God? Well, you know, there's um, an ancient rabbi, and, and of course, not all rabbis are created equal. Um, the training was similar. There was a specific course of study or degree of study that they had to undergo uh, to operate on behalf of the people standing before God. But some priests had a greater understanding of the, of the covenant than others. Some priests were better communicators than others. And there are several of them throughout Jewish history that um, are identified as the great teachers or the great rabbis or the great priests or whatever terminology you want to use for it. You remember Paul in standing before uh, a Roman soldier that was, uh, or a magistrate that had commanded the soldiers to beat Paul. Paul questioned him about beating a Roman citizen. And this guy said, this guy stopped what he's doing and he said, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yeah. The other guy said that he was a Roman citizen at great cost. He had bought his citizenship into the nation of Rome. Paul said he was born free. Paul talks about being taught at the feet of Gamaliel, who's one of these master rabbis. Everybody understood that Gamaliel had a better handle on the Old Covenant and the laws of Moses than anybody else did. He was a great communicator, according to historical writings about him. Well, Paul said he learned at the feet of Gamaliel. And as such, he was taught by one of the great ones. It was a, it was a symbol or a sign that Paul knew his stuff, especially when it came to talking to Jews and ministering to the Jews. He knew his stuff. Well, one of these ancient masters made a comment, and he said this. He said that the whole of the world can be known from the book of Genesis. He said if you understand the book of Genesis, you understand everything, or you can't understand everything. Now, granted, this was before Jesus came to the earth, and... There's a lot of things about Jesus and what Jesus did for us that the Jews and the rabbis don't know and don't um, hold fast to. But one of these guys said, if you understand Genesis, 
you can understand everything about God. I found that to be true. Not that I claim to know everything about God. But anything I've got a question about, if I go back to the book of Genesis, the answer is there, whether it shows me the character and the nature of God or whether it just reminds me of how things started off according to the will and the plan and the purpose of God. Well, that's what I do with this. Without faith, it's impossible to please God because God requires of us that we believe he is, in other words, that he is who he says he is, and that he's a rewarder of them that seek him. He's a rewarder of them that seek him. He's a rewarder of them that seek him. I had an a, 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 um, experience in 1981 when I was working with Brother Hagen at, uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And as I was, I had put some time and effort uh, during that summer when we were on the road uh, in, in crusades. Did a lot of crusades, just one-nighter things in uh, the northeastern part of the country. I had spent a lot of time seeking God. I felt like he put it on my heart. He told me specifically to seek him. Well, I didn't know how you did that. How do you seek God? I got into the Word. I, I got into Word studies. I did everything that I thought I could do, and none of it satisfied me. At the end of my several months of seeking God, I didn't feel like I'd found out anything more about him than I had before. I wasn't confident in the, the process that I was engaged in, but God looks on the heart. And so walking up a flight of stairs, the Lord quickened Hebrews eleven six to me, specifically the part about it, believing that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Well, I knew in an instant, in a moment of time, that that's God saying that there's a reward for me because I've been seeking him. And within, well, less than 10 days later, I had received a real boost in salary. I went from being the single lowest paid individual at uh, Kenneth Hagin Ministries to being the top 10% of salary. So I've had an experience with this, and I know about the reward thing. When I talk about this uh, experience that I had, it jumps on the inside of me just like it did before. It's just as real to me today as it was then. I love how the Holy Ghost does that with quickened scriptures to your heart. And they're yours forever. If you don't know what I'm talking about, get in the Word. Because it's just simply a function of knowing God or fellowshipping with God or seeking God through His Word that those things take place. Well, when I look at this scripture, without faith it's impossible to please Him. I always ask why. I live on why. How's good? What's clear? But why is the thing for me? I want to know why. Because if I can understand why, then I've gone beyond just understanding what one scripture says or what one thing God's trying to get across. I come away with a greater understanding of him. So I live on why. The question why is always there for me. And the answer generally is back in the book of Genesis. The answer is generally back in the book of beginnings. So when it says, without faith it's impossible to please God, why is that? Well, let's remember back to what God did when he created the earth. He said in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our own image, after our own likeness. And let them have the dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and over every creepy thing that creeps upon the earth. God's original plan was for man to have dominion. 
what does that mean in real life experience? When God made man, Adam and Eve, he put them in the garden. He said, everything that you see, everything under my, or been, that has been created by me is you, is for you, and is yours. What state was Adam in? I like to think about these things because if I can understand clearly what the condition was that Adam had before the fall, then I can know what God wants for us because that's what Jesus came to restore to us. He came to purchase us, ransom us from spiritual death or separation from God, which took place when Adam and Eve sinned. And he came to restore back to us the authority that God originally intended. Now, as I say over and over again, I hope you never get tired of hearing it, but whether you do or not, I'm going to keep saying it over and over again. God's original plan is God's present day plan. God never changes. So if God originally wanted man to have dominion in the earth, he still does. And there's no way that he would have wanted Adam to have greater dominion than he wants for you or me. Or else God's changed. So the extent, or we might say the limit, if there is one, the limit of Adam's authority on the earth has to be the same for us. It has to be. Or else God would be a respecter of persons. So what did God create in Adam? What position did Adam hold before the fall? Every bit of knowledge he had came from God. He didn't learn anything any other way except from God. Now, I don't know exactly how to, how to reason this out, but I know that, the, that science tells us that the human brain is used. Everybody uses their brain about 10% or uses about 10% of their brain power for everyday life. Well, there's no way God made a brain to put in you or me or anybody else to be used at 10% capacity. That's just not what he did. I have to assume then that God gave Adam an intellect that was 10 times greater than what our normal experience is. I believe Adam had access before the fall. I believe Adam had access to the limit or limitlessness of the human brain, the human mind. And because Adam was made in the image and likeness of God, we know the Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5.23 that man is a spirit being. He has a soul and he lives in a body. Adam's spirit, soul, and body were in harmony. He didn't have any source, other source of influence. He didn't have any other source of information before the fall other than God. Now, the Bible indicates to us or suggests to us in Genesis chapter 3 that God would come down and walk with Adam in the cool of the day, walk through the garden. I can't help but think that that was the teaching session. I can't help but think that if Adam had any questions, that was the time that he asked them. Now, that may not be true, or it may not even been that he had any questions. Maybe he had an intellect that caused him to know everything from the beginning. I don't know. But I do know this. I know that when Adam and Eve were tempted and chose to disobey God, something changed. And that something that changed was the spiritual death took hold of it. Because of his sin, spiritual death took hold. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, 
No, I'm sorry, it's Romans 5, 17. That spiritual death entered by sin, and that death, that spiritual death passed upon all men. We know there are certain things that the Bible indicates to us about Adam and Eve when they fell. It said instantly their eyes were opened, and they saw that they were naked and ashamed. They became ashamed. Then it says they heard God walking in the cool of the garden, or in the cool of the day, walking through the garden, and they hid themselves because they were afraid. So the first two things the Bible tells us is Adam, Adam and Eve both experienced shame because of their physical condition and fear because God's coming to see them. For the first time, Adam is receiving influence or information. And when I say Adam, I'm talking about them both. Adam and Eve. But for the first time ever, they're receiving input from something other than their spirit, which was joined to God. I can't imagine. Well, I, I do imagine it, but I'm sure I'm not even close in my imagination to Adam's disappointment when things changed. How would you feel? Now, this is part of the Genesis account that I... I I really can't figure out. I really can't figure out what in the world Adam and or Eve, Eve was deceived, the Bible says Adam wasn't. I think he fell because she fell. I think he picked her over the condition and the state that he was in. But what was the temptation? Satan used the body of the serpent to speak to them drew their attention to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they were commanded not to eat of. Eve saw that it was good. Well, of course it was good. It was made by God. God can't make anything bad. One thing that I think is missing from the Genesis account is when God told them about the, the, the tree that they were forbidden to eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Where's Adam's question, what's evil? Because he didn't know. He had no way to know. At least he didn't know by experience. If it was part of the information download that he started with to know about Satan, to know about his enemy, and to know the, the, uh, the way that the enemy attacks, we don't have that recorded. But Eve looked at the tree and saw that it was good and pleasant to eat from. And so she fell. Satan tempted her by saying, you'll be like God. Well, didn't she know that she was like God already? I don't know what the temptation was. There's something there that I am not understanding because he offered her what she already had. And why the temptation? Why would she go for something she already had? You see my point? That part I can't figure. That part I don't know. But I know for the first time their spirits were not in harmony with their souls and their bodies. Instantly, they become body-ruled. Instantly, their attention goes to their feelings and their flesh. Instantly. The Bible says in James chapter 3, really starts in verse 1, but about verse 5, 6, 7, somewhere around there, it talks about the, the nature of the tongue. It says, the tongue is the little member, but it boasts great things and is set on course of the fires of hell. In other words, our tongue is influenced by the devil. It says it's a deadly poison. It poisons our lives. 
Well, that makes me, well, that certainly wasn't the way God created the tongue to begin with. That's certainly not the case of the tongue during the period of time between Adam's creation and the fall. I don't know how long that was, but I think we assumed that it was, he was made on Saturday and fell by the next Friday. I doubt that that was the case. I doubt that was the case. I doubt as the devil moved that quickly to bring temptation to them. But whatever period of time it was, short or long, whatever period of time it was, Adam had experienced the dominion that God intended for him to have and had given him. He had experienced the power of his words. He had experienced to some degree the use of his tongue in harmony with his spirit. And folks, I believe that's what God's trying to get us back to. I believe the reason that faith is the only thing that pleases God or is the only thing that's identified in the way that it is that pleases God is because God's trying to get us back to a place where our spirits and our souls and our bodies are back in harmony. Paul tells us some things. Chapter 7 of Romans is an incredibly important chapter for me. And it must have been for Paul too because it tells us about Paul's struggle between the real man on the inside, the spirit man that's alive unto God, the spirit man that serves God completely. He contrasts that or shows the conflict and the struggle between the inward man and the outward man, the spirit man and the flesh. And of course, when he talks about the flesh, he's talking about the mind that influences the actions of the flesh. He comes over to Romans chapter 12 after explaining the difficulty and explaining that he's found that the truth of the matter is his spirit, which is alive unto God, is the real him. The real him that's influenced by the course of this world, the tongue that is influenced by the devil, and spiritual death specifically, that's not the real him. That's not the real him. And we've all experienced to some degree what Paul describes in, about his own experience, his own Christian life, where we, meaning our flesh, does things that the real man on the inside, the real person on the inside that's alive unto God, resents. I hate to use this terminology, but we hate ourselves when we sin. Well, if your spirit wasn't alive unto God, there would be no conflict. There would be no conflict. So when God makes Adam and Eve and puts them in the garden, gives them dominion over all the works of his hands, their spirits don't have a conflict between their souls and their bodies. They didn't even, uh, unless it was just a technical piece of information, they weren't even aware of the fact that they had a soul in their body and a body. It's just all one thing working together until the fall. And at the fall, man lost control of his tongue. I don't mean by that he lost the use of his tongue. I mean, I mean from that, or from, uh, by that saying, what I'm trying to get across is that they lost the ability for their spirit to control their tongue. Because they're spiritually dead. There's no spiritual source of information anymore for them. They're completely body-ruled. 
And to the degree that Satan had influence and gained influence into this earth, now they're under his power. So what does God try to get us to do? Well, Paul goes into great detail in Romans chapter 12 about what we're to do with our bodies and what we're to do with our minds. He tells us in chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Now, that's what Paul was talking about he was having trouble with in chapter 7. Paul said in so many words that sometimes his body was out of control. That means out of the control of the spirit, the real man on the inside that wants to serve God and please him. So he tells us to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Most translations translate that spiritual worship, which is your spiritual worship. It's how you worship God in spirit. We Pentecostals think that we've got a lock on everything because we can sing and praise God in tongues. Thank God for the ability to sing and praise God in tongues. But that's not what worshiping in spirit really means when Jesus told the woman at the well about how those that worship God must worship in spirit and truth. He's talking about doing something with your body. He's talking about bringing your body under control. Then in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, Paul goes further to talk about the soul. Let's look at Romans chapter 12. I was going to quote some of it, but I think it would be good for us to see it. Verse 2, he said, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind. Your mind was new once. And I don't believe he's talking about your mind as a baby. Because you were still born into sin. You were still born under spiritual death, the curse of spiritual death. Now, I know there's an age of accountability, and Paul said, I was alive without the law once, but when the law came, sin revived and I died. I believe babies and young children are alive unto God, spiritually alive, until they come to the point where they can make a decision for themselves about right and wrong. But they were still born under death. Nobody, no human being ever had the power to resist sin. So he's talking about a transformation that comes by the renewing of your mind. By the renewing of your mind. By the renewing of your mind. Adam's mind was new. And it was flooded with spiritual information. It was flooded with information and influence from his spirit that was in union with God. God is a spirit. I believe the renewing of the mind is not talking about us gaining a mind that goes back before we knew sin. Because that would give us the mind of a child. No, the renewing of the mind means to renew your mind to what Adam had before the fall. And you can only do that through the word. And it says that it brings forth a transformation. Now, notice what the transformation is for. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove. The word prove is experience. That you may experience what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That renewing of the mind puts you back in a place of authority. That renewing of the mind brings you back to what Adam had before the fall. 
Now, folks, I understand the difficulty with this kind of preaching. The difficulty with this kind of teaching is that none of us think that we can do it just right. We're all struck by this idea that, okay, God set the bar high, and we'll do the best we can, but we really can't get there because we'll never lose the experience of sin in our flesh. And that's true. I think this is one reason why in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, it says, there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. I believe Paul looked at his experience, even the sin that was in his flesh, the sin that his body led him into, that he describes in some detail, even though his heart resented it, even though his spirit wasn't on board for it. The disunity, the conflict between his spirit man and the man on the outside, the flesh that he refers to. And the flesh that he refers to includes the unrenewed soul or the unrenewed mind. James called it the saving of the soul. He's got to be talking about the same thing as the renewing of the mind. So when Paul talks about the outward man or the flesh gaining victory over the inward man, the spirit, he's talking about the soul and the body teaming up to defeat the spirit, his spirit, the real him. And that's the same conflict and fight we all have. So it comes down to this. And I've taken this little rabbit trail, gone around the tree a couple of times, to bring us back to this point. And that is, the faith that pleases God is the soul of man, the renewed mind of man, joining with the spirit instead of the things that our body sees and feels, to act like Adam did in the garden. And that's the only kind of faith that can please God. The faith that turns away from the outward influences. The faith that turns away from the influence, the words, the, the doubts, the thoughts of the enemy. To harmonize with the spirit of man that's been made new. Now, I want you to look at some things with me. Look with me over to uh, Matthew chapter 8. Well, right, let's start with Matthew 15 first. Matthew 15. We've got some experiences or some uh, illustrations of the faith that Jesus indicated that God was pleased with. If we can call it this, the right kind of faith. Now, folks, there is no wrong kind of faith because the faith we're talking about is faith on the Word of God, faith that comes by hearing and hearing by the Word. So when, we, when I use this phrase, the wrong faith, I'm talking about faith that didn't see the answer through, faith that was detoured somewhere along the way that didn't finish the promise and receive the answer. Matthew 15, beginning in verse 21, then Jesus went thence and departed into the coast of Tyre and Sidon, that's Gentile territory. These are places Jesus didn't do any works because he was sent to, the, uh, sent to the Jews first. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coast and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. She's persistent. She won't give up. But Jesus answered and said, I am not sent to, but unto the lost sheep of this house of Israel. Now, he's not talking to his disciples. He's saying, stay, making this statement 
in earshot of her. He's not talking directly to her, but he's speaking loudly enough so that she understands, here's why I can't help you. It wasn't a matter of him not having power. It was a matter of him being sent to the Jews first. That's what it means, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The prophecies, and there were tons of prophecies from the old covenant, the law of Moses, saying that Jesus would, Jesus as the Messiah would come and bring salvation to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. But he's not finished ministering to the Jews, so he is not available for her as a Gentile. So he said, I'm not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. She won't give up. But he answered and said, It is not meat to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. The Jews called the Gentiles dogs, no matter how, what status they had or social standing or anything like that. And Jesus is just using the terminology of the day that she is perfectly aware of. And I'll have to say, this is just my own opinion. You judge it for whatever you think it's worth. But I think Jesus used the terminology. It's not like he cursed her. But he could have said it a lot different way. He could have said it in an encouraging way, but he didn't. I think he's seeing how much she will take. I think he's finding out what is her offense level. So far, she won't give up. Let's see if this will do it. He says, it's not right or meat to take the children's bread. Healing it belongs to the children, therefore. And to cast it to dogs. And she said, truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. She refuses to be offended, and she refuses to quit. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is your faith. Here's the faith that pleases God. O woman, great is your faith, be it unto you even as you will. And her daughter was made whole from that very hour. Now, what do you think is running through her head all the time this is going on? You think there's any possibility that the devil is leaving her alone about this? Do you think there's any possibility that the devil hasn't used three examples, the three times here, based on what Jesus said to try to discourage her and send her away? But she will not quit. She will not give up. Jesus, in effect, has told her no. In effect, he told her no. The first time when she cried out, my daughter is grievously vexed with the devil, he just didn't answer. He ignores her. Some people quit when they don't feel like God is present. Some people quit when they can't get God to tell them something else. Some people quit because of the silence. She didn't quit. She cries more, Lord, have mercy on me. Jesus answers and says, I'm only sent to Israel first. I'm not sent to you. If that's not a no, I don't know what is. Now, now I can put a good spin on it. It's, Jesus very easily could have said, you know, ma'am, I'd like to. But Israel, but I don't think that's the way it went either. So now she's been effectively ignored by Jesus. And secondly, 
refuse a Jesus. Some people quit because the devil tells them they can't have it. Some people quit. Their faith comes to an end when some outside influence, and that's what this is. They're words from Jesus' mouth, but it's still outside influence. Some people quit when those outside influences say no. She didn't. She came back the third time and said, Lord, help me. Then Jesus says, it's not right to take the children's bread, the healing, the deliverance that you're looking for, which is the children's bread. It's part of the covenant. It's part of the feast that the Lord sets a table before our enemies for us. He says, it's not right to take the children's bread and to cast it to dogs. She refuses to be offended by the names. So what does she do? Well, she can quit. Very easy for her to quit. We would understand why she would quit. But she takes his words and makes it fit for her. She said, truth, Lord. Well, everything he says is true. She says, truth, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. What's she doing? She's magnifying his ability to help. She's magnifying his ability to help. He hasn't offered help. He hasn't indicated that the disciples will be back in a couple of years and then they'll be able to do it. She refuses to quit. She takes the word and makes it apply to herself. You know, of all the years we've been pastoring and the years that I was working with Brother Hagen on top of that, it is a rare thing almost to non-existent. The times when somebody would come and talk to us about why the word works for them or why the word was for them and available for them and fit for them but I could count hundreds of times where people came by and they were wanting us to try to convince them that the word would work for them too. Jesus doesn't have to prop this woman up. She magnifies him. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. That's what the faith that pleases God looks like. From her story, we see that the faith that pleases God is a faith that will not quit no matter what, no matter what circumstance, no matter what influence, no matter what words. It's a faith that will not quit. Look with her to Matthew chapter 8 now. Verse 5, And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lies at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. And Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that thou should be, come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this man, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to thy servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said unto them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. 
But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go your way, and as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. This one, the man doesn't have to resist a refusal. He doesn't have to endure being ignored by Jesus. And he's no more a Jew than the Syrophoenician woman was in Matthew 15. He's not any more Jewish than she is or was. Well, what's the deal with him? Why was Jesus so ready to come heal his servant? When the woman, the Syrophoenician woman that we just read about had so much difficulty getting through. Well, there's only one thing that we can identify about this thing, and it's, I think it's Luke's account, Luke chapter 8. I think it's Luke's account that tells us about the Jews that were around Jesus when this man or this man's agent, his servant, came by and made the request. He had built a synagogue in Capernaum for the Jews. And so the, the leaders that were around Jesus and in the company when this event occurred, they said, he's worthy of your help because he's built the synagogue for the Jews in Capernaum. Remember the Old Testament said, God said, I'll bless those that bless you. Talking to Abraham, I'll bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. A lot of people try to apply that today. But that's all been fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled that. The blessings of God aren't because you bless Israel. The blessings of God are because you believe in Jesus and stand on his word. I know a lot of people are looking for great things about to happen in America because we've blessed Israel now. We moved our capital to Jerusalem or in the process of doing it or whatever. It's been announced that it'll take place. And I've had a lot of people say, oh, aren't you excited? No, no, not really. I think it was the right thing to do. Israel considers Jerusalem to be the capital. Why should anybody else have to say so? But it doesn't have anything to do with the blessing of God on, on America. America is not blessed because we bless Israel. That's an Old Testament promise that's been fulfilled by Jesus. But it certainly was applicable in his case, the centurion's case. They said he's done great things. He's built us a synagogue. Go help him. And Jesus says, fulfilling the covenant promise of God, I'll come. But he says, you don't have to. I understand authority. Speak the word only and my servant will be healed. Speak the word only, and my servant will be healed. Folks, the outstanding characteristic of this story, to me, is, that, is what the man said of himself. He said, I understand authority. And Jesus called it great faith. Well, what kind of authority is he talking about? Clearly, he believes that Jesus has authority over sickness and disease, or else he wouldn't ask him to just speak the word. Clearly, he understands that Jesus' authority has been demonstrated through the spoken word. And Jesus calls that great faith. Now what does that mean? That means very specifically that this centurion believes that God is. And that he's a rewarder of them that seek him. Just like Hebrews 11.6 says. This guy is the epitome of Hebrews 11.6. He's the epitome of 11.6. Hebrews 11.6. He believes in authority. What kind of authority? Man's authority on the earth. Isn't that where we started in Genesis? Isn't that what God said about Adam and Eve? 
before he created them and put them in the earth? Let us make man in our own image and let them have dominion over the works of our hands. So what does this mean? It means to me that these experiences, these events, these stories that are given to us in the Bible, true stories that are given to us in the Scripture, identify what kind of faith God is looking for from us. Now, we could take time. We don't have the time to do it. But we could take time and go to the story of when the disciples were in the middle of the ship and the winds and the waves and all this kind of stuff was going on. And they told Jesus, wake up, wake up, we're about to die. Don't want you to sleep through our death. Jesus calms the storm and says, oh, you have little faith, why did you doubt? Same thing happens on another occasion when Jesus comes walking on the water to the ship that the disciples are in in the middle of a storm. Peter asks, Jesus identifies himself. He said, don't be afraid, it's just me. Peter says, Lord, if it's you, have me come to you on the water. Jesus said, come. And it goes into some detail that Peter walked on the water, but then he saw the things going on around him. In other words, he saw the wind, or felt the wind, he saw the waves, and it caused him to unhook his soul from his spirit. When he's walking on the water, he's in harmony, the kind of harmony that Paul is telling us that we can achieve through the renewing of our minds, the word, the kind of authority that Adam had on the earth. Do you realize if God gave Adam authority, if there was a need, now he couldn't just do it to entertain himself, but if there was a need, he could have walked on water? If the need arose, Adam had authority to do anything and everything that he needed to do with the earth and supersede the laws of nature just like Jesus did. If there was a need. Now again, I don't think he could just play with this stuff. I don't think Adam took his kids as they were born and their playground was on top of the water in the middle of the lake. But if the need arose, they had authority to do the same things that Jesus did when he was here. And folks, that's what I see about Jesus' ministry. That's what I see in the four Gospels. I'm looking to see it more, but that's what I see. I see Jesus operating outside the limitations of the unrenewed mind and the sin-experienced flesh. And that's what God wants to get us back to. When the Bible talks about us being conformed more and more to the image of Christ, I believe a part of that is not just the character. Sure, character first. We want to be conformed to the character and the nature of Jesus. But I believe he wants us to be conformed to his authority too. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have done the, the searching that he did. The Holy Ghost wouldn't have brought the revelation that he did to Paul to tell us how to get there. To tell us how to get there. But he did. He wants that transformation to take place in each and every one of us. The transformation that comes by the renewing of the mind. Not cleansing of the mind. The renewing of the mind. Coming back to the realization that God has given us the tools. So that in our minds, or literally our souls, which is made up of the mind, the will, and the emotion. So that our souls and our flesh can once again enter into the harmony that was God's original intent. And let me close with this. 
This is why I think this is important. The reason I think this is important is because the kind of faith that pleases God is when our spirits and souls and body have returned to that place of harmony like God originally intended. That's what made us made in the image of God. We don't just look like God's form. We do. But that's not what interested God. It wasn't the form that he gave man. It wasn't the body, the shape of the body that he gave man. You remember in Exodus 33 when Moses uh, said to the Lord, I want to see your face. And the Lord said, you can't do it and live. No sinful flesh can look on the face of God. He said, but here's what I'll do. I'll put you in a cleft of the rock, this crack in the rock wall. And I'll hold my hand over you and pass by and let you see my, my back parts. Well, that sounds a lot like uh, the body that we have, doesn't it? God must have a face. He said Moses couldn't see it and live. He must have a hand. He said, I'll put my hand over you. He must have back parts because he said, I'll let you look at my back parts. Well, there has to be some distinguishing features that, that make the back parts different from the front parts, don't there? Otherwise, parts is parts. So it sounds like God's form was a lot like our human bodies. But that's not what interested God about being made in his image. What interested God about us being made in his image is because he made our spirits alive unto him. Our souls connected to our spirits and therefore our flesh, our tongue connected to our spirits so that we could operate in perfect harmony without sin, without evil, without the presence of evil or anything there, thereby the influence of Satan in any respect whatsoever, just like God does. And the Bible says we can get there. Now, I don't know anybody that's arrived. But I know I'm doing a lot better at it than I used to do. I can see growth. I can see things that I used to struggle with that I don't struggle with anymore. I can see things that I used to think uh, wrongly about God. And strongholds that were developed and built up in my mind because of a lack of knowledge. Now a lot of those are gone. All of those are gone that I'm aware of. But they're always, just about the time you think you get everything handled, something else comes up and you say, well, there's something I hadn't figured on. Got to take care of that now too. And that's what spiritual growth is all about. Spiritual growth is the growth in knowledge so that our spirits and our flesh, so that our souls and our flesh can harmonize with our spirit and operate according to what God said and not according to the influences of the earth. That's what the renewed mind is all about. That's what the renewed mind is all about. Jesus said, whosoever shall say unto this mountain. Have you ever noticed he didn't qualify that as whosoever is living a pure life and says to this mountain? Now, don't get me wrong. God wants us. He's called us to purity. He's called us to honesty. He's called us to the same character of himself as he himself has the character and the nature of God in our lives, in our everyday lives, in everything that we do. God expects that of us. But Jesus didn't use it as a requirement. He said, whosoever shall say, unto this mountain be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart. There he's talking about the conflict between doubt that comes against your mind and words of faith spoken from your spirit. And shall not doubt in his heart. That implies, and the Bible fleshes it out a little bit more, reveals it even more detail. It shows us that we're going to have a struggle. There is a fight of faith. 
It's not a fight of being worthy. It's not a fight of being, getting God to do what he said he was, would do from his word. That's a given. It's a conflict between our minds that receive information and influence from the world saying the same thing the devil said to Adam and Eve. The penalty will not be what God said it would be. It'll be all right. God knows that you'll be like him. There's all kinds of things that the devil brings against us and brings to us as reasons why things won't work. And he's lying to us just as much as he lied in the Garden of Eden. But that's where the conflict is. That's where the struggle is. So Jesus said, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe. Must be talking about believing in the heart if he's talking about doubting in the heart. The heart is a reference to the spirit of man, but shall believe with his heart. In other words, from his spirit, based on the knowledge of what God said he would do. And holding fast to that confession. Jesus said, if we do that, not doubt in our heart, but believe that the words that we say come to pass, there's authority. There's the centurion's understanding of authority in a nutshell in Mark eleven twenty three. 23. But shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Our souls and our flesh in harmony with our spirit produces spiritual results, produces spiritual blessings, receives spiritual blessings from God every time. Every time. God's word is a slam dunk from his end. We can make it the same on ours. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we love you so much, and we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given us the keys of the kingdom of heaven. You've given us instruction to show us who you are and what you will do and what you have done for us through the sacrifice of Jesus. You've let us know that heaven and earth will pass away, but your word will never fail. Therefore, we declare that your word will never fail us in Jesus' name. We declare that the blessings of God are ours. Because we've been made new creatures in Christ Jesus. We declare that we're healed. We're financially blessed. We have abundance. We have the peace of God. And we declare that the life of God permeates every cell of our body and saturates every fiber of our being to restore us to divine health. Lord, you know that there's a lot of things coming against us from a lot of different sources, all that can be tracked, traced back to the devil's position of influence in the earth through man's fall in the Garden of Eden. But we determine that we'll keep our souls and our bodies in harmony with our spirit and count on you to make good your word in our lives. Therefore, we believe that we shall receive Oh, because we have believed that we receive, we count it done that we shall have it, even as you said in Mark eleven twenty four. And because we believe our words come to pass, we declare from our hearts, no matter what we see or feel, we declare from our hearts that we'll have what we say. Lord, you really did make us new. We really are new creatures in you a new creation, a new species of being that hasn't been seen in this earth since you've made Adam and Eve and put them in your garden. Thank you, Father, for the authority that we have over all the work of the enemy, 
because you defeated him. Satan is a defeated foe that it can only hinder us, only delay us, only hold us back when we give ear to his threats, when we yield to his influence. And we refuse to do that anymore, Lord. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. You know, one of the saddest things in all of Paul's writings was when he told the church, one of the churches that he wrote to, the Corinthian church, he told them that they were living as mere men. He wasn't talking about sin in their lives so much. Of course, there was that, and he encouraged them to make that right. But there's a difference between stumbling over your flesh and living below your your position living as mere men could be identified as God having given us authority and through ignorance our failure to use it and Paul calls that being as a mere man I don't believe we ought to live below our station I believe we ought to bring glory to God in the name of Jesus by living up to who he made us to be. Don't you? Thank God we can do it. Thank God we can do it. Amen. Well, thank you for being with us. We love each and every one of you, and we hope you have a great rest of the week.